The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Today is the part two of our Gift of Exoneration series that we have every December. But let me start off today's program by remembering two men, Bill West, a former PI and founder of Alliance Marketing and Insurance Services of San Marco, California, passed away the end of November. And then yesterday, we also lost Steve Wachtel. Steve owned Brady Investigations in Mission Hills, California, and just was a fantastic investigator. These two men leave a very, very large hole in the California investigative community. So now with, to, with today's show, um, we have as guests Susan Mellon. Susan Mellon just two months ago yesterday walked out of a Torrance, California courtroom after serving 17 years in prison for a murder she didn't commit. So we're, we have her with us. Susan, hello. Thank you for being on the show. Hello. Hi. Thank you for um, having me on your show. Absolutely. Um, and then we have Deidre. Do I might pronounce it Deirdre? Yes. Deirdre O'Connor, founder of the Innocence Manor- Matters, is also with us today. And good morning, Deirdre. Good morning. Thank you for having us, Francie. Absolutely. I mean, gosh, two months. You must, Susan. You must be still just reeling from being free after seventeen years. Yes, it's really still overwhelming, and, and it's like a, um, a new adventure. Um, but I'm enjoying every day, um, just every day is a gift to enjoy, and um, I'm excited to see what, um, what God's going to do in my life. Well, I read something that you said um, that it, it, you had your own key. You, you had your own key that you could unlock the door and go in your house or, or leave. That was a, a huge thing. Yes, to have the apartment um, key to my daughter's apartment where I'm living at this time is it's just amazing just to be able to um, open the door and just to walk out the front door and know that I'm not locked in um, is so um, exciting and overwhelming. But um, and opening the refrigerator door and just to get whatever food I want and it's um, I'm excited. It's like a new adventure in my life and um, I'm enjoying my my new um, my new life. Yes. Well, congr- congratulations. Thank and you. I, you know, I don't know why you had to go through all this, but I'm so happy that you're out. Yes, thank you. So we have much to discuss regarding Susan's case, but first, Deirdre, I'd like to talk to you uh, about Innocence Man- Matters. Sure. Could you talk about your program a little bit? 
Sure. We were um, opened up in 2010, and we started right away with um, a client that came through, uh, John Smith. We were able to get him out. Um, the evidence we needed to get him out we had within a few months, uh, but then it took a, a year and a half to convince the DA. Um, and then we've had a couple other clients since then. Susan is our second exoneree, and we're expecting another one in a few months. Um, we're a very small nonprofit based in Torrance, California, um, and the driven uh, almost exclusively by volunteer effort. Um, and we're a second look organization. We take uh, people who have been rejected from existing organizations mm. and take a, a little closer look at it to see if there's something we might be able to do through investigations. And our primary... Um, I think the thing that we bring to the table uh, really is the the really thorough, detailed investigation um, that we're able to do uh, once we identify someone uh, that we believe really has a compelling case of innocence. That's just fantastic. Uh, dear, do you want to give the website for your... Sure. It's, it's uh, www.innocencematters.org. So, um, innocence, uh, I-N-N-O-C-E-N-C-E. As some people think I'm saying it with a T, but I'm not. <laughs> and then matters with an S at the end. So innocencematters.org. Okay. And tell us a little bit about your background. I was a public defender. Um, when I first graduated from law school, I knew for sure that that's all I wanted to do. And I loved it. I loved uh, representing people who couldn't afford uh, to hire a lawyer. And I loved being in trial. Um, and I thought for sure I was going to be a career uh, public defender and finish retire from there. Um, then I went out on uh, maternity leave and wanted something that I thought where I had a little bit more balance. Um, and that ultimately led me to teaching um, at a law school, um, supervising students as they do their uh, first trial. And that's where I learned of the Troy Davis case. Um, and he was an innocent Georgia death row um, inmate who couldn't get um, the system to pay attention to his claims of innocence. So I worked on that as an amicus attorney for a number of years, and that's what ultimately inspired me to open up Innocence Matters. Yeah, and Troy actually was executed, even though you believe very strongly that he is factually innocent. Yeah, there was a lot of a lot, a lot of people working on the case, uh, and yeah, uh, much effort went into it. But Georgia was determined, and they executed him on September twenty first of two thousand and eleven. And that was the inspiration for Innocence Matters. Right. Good for you. You know, not, not many people follow their uh, instinct like you did. I, I congratulate you for that. So uh, when you were in Atlanta, you were at Emory Law School? Yes. Okay. And then when you were in a, in, uh, at the Public Defender's Office, that was Los Angeles County? Yes. It's a, it's a great office um, with a lot of really fine lawyers. Yeah, and then you you actually founded Innocence Matters, and you are the executive director currently. Yes, yes, and we have a, it's a great uh, for for a small shop. We uh, we get a lot of great work done, and we rely heavily on local um, law students. We're affiliated with each of the uh, six area law schools, and um, I'm actually. Um, hoping soon that we'll have some pe- uh, people from my alma mater in Northeastern because uh, they um, 
send their students out on a full-time basis. Mm. But we take students uh, from any law school that is interested and able to come for a set period of time, and they really do a lot of work uh, to help um, bring people like Susan home. And the, the interns that were working on Susan's case got to go and meet her uh, on several occasions and were in the courtroom when she got exonerated. So it's a, it's a real, um, um, you know, indelible experience that they leave uh, with to, to know that they had a part in making sure somebody who is innocent is ultimately freed. That's great. And, you know, many Innocence Projects work with private investigators as well. Do you do that? We have a retired deputy sheriff uh, who works with us, David Winkler. He was very instrumental in this case. Um, and we've had uh, been fortunate to have his help for two years. We, we've had, uh, we are interested in reaching out to the uh, private investigator community um, and exploring ways which they can help um, on these cases, because as you, as you can imagine, there is a ton of investigation that has to go into uh, mm-hmm. undoing the damage that was done some 15, 20 years before. For sure. For sure. Okay, that's, uh, that's great. And Susan, I want to hear what happened to you. So, um, Well, I was, when I got arrested, I think um, it was like my worst nightmare, and they just, they took me from my life, and I was at McDonald's with my daughter, Jessica, and... Um, they just, um, when they seen me in the parking lot, they just grabbed me and, you know, practically threw me down and cuffed me. And, and I had my nine-year-old daughter, Jessica, with me. And we just both started crying. And, and she was a little hysterical. I was hysterical. And they put us in the back seat of the car. And um, that was the beginning of my nightmare. And um, I think when, I, when we dropped her off at her, um, at her sister's house, um, that's when I told her, don't worry, baby, um, I'll be back for dinner. And I never went back. So um, that was um, devastating, and, and I know that that was, like, um, something she's never got over. But um, And then when I went into trial and I was looking at the death sentence, um, I think um, I went into shock in my body. I felt like I had a body experience where my body left me, and people were talking to me after they told me I was looking at the death sentence. I didn't hear anybody. I couldn't. It was like I was deaf. I couldn't hear anybody talk to me, and um, it was just so scary, so frightening. And um, I think um, I just don't even know now today when I look back on it all how I got through it all. But I know that God became really real to me because I was so desperate and I needed somebody to help me get through the um, the lies and the injustice and and what was going on that it was hard for me to believe that I was really going to, um, that they really convicted me. I kept thinking that, no, the truth's going to come out, the truth's coming out, you know, I'm innocent, but um, it never did. So um, it was um, it was just the most frightening, scary um, experience I've ever experienced. I, I really believe it was a nightmare, but um, God became real to me because I was so desperate for help, and nobody was really helping me, and it wasn't, it was like I, I needed somebody to help me and comfort me, and that was when um, God's, God became real to me, and His grace just um, helped me get through it all. And the day that they sentenced me and I was on the bus ride, I actually saw a rainbow in the sky, and that rainbow um, comforted me because I felt like um, like mm. it was like God was telling me, don't worry, I'm going to take you through. So it it gave me like, like a peace that I can't even explain now, you know, today, but when I look back on it, um, rainbows mean a lot to me now because that day... 
um, I felt like God ra- um, actually painted a rainbow in the sky for me and, and just told me he promised he would take me through, and that was um, back in May of 1997. And um, I believe God was with me every day. I felt like his love was what um, gave me um, energy. He energized me and empowered me, um, and it was a process and just to go through all the, um, the pain and my broken heart and devastation. But um, I got through, and I'm here today now, and I'm free. And, and, um, and you are. You're here today. You know, you talk about your daughter. Uh, that was, Jessica was only nine years old, right? Right. At the time. And then you had a, you had a son as well? Yes, an eight-year-old son, and then an older daughter, 20, 21, I think she was at the time. And your older daughter actually took the other two under her wing and raised them. Um, yes, after uh, a few years, because the, they were living with their grandmother the first couple of years, but the older daughter actually told my two little ones, Jessica and Donnie, that their mother was never going to come back, and I didn't know that until just recently that she told them that. Um, so I always believed that I was going to get out. I, I never believed that prison was my life. I always believed that um, one day I was going to walk out and I had my my walking shoes that say freedom on the bottom of my shoes. I, mm. I just never let um, the life without the possibility of parole. I had a counselor tell me after my mother died six months after I got to prison in January of 1999, he, I wanted to go to her, her funeral, and he says, oh, no, Melon, you can't go to your mother's funeral. You will never walk out of this prison. You've got life without the possibility of parole. And I said, what does that mean? He goes, you'll never walk out of this prison. You will go home in a pine box. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you're... This is crazy, and I remember I was sick for three days, and I was devastated that I, I didn't even actually know I had life without the possibility of parole until I got to prison. I thought I had 25 to life, but um, I think um, back then it was just uh, I couldn't have handled it, you know, in the courtroom if they would have mm-hmm. told me the life without. I probably, maybe I would have, I don't know, maybe I would have passed out and, you know, had a heart attack. I don't know, but it was just everything happened that... Um, that just got me through this um, this horrible um, nightmare. Well, you talk about having freedom on the bottom of your shoes. Every time you got a new uh, another set of shoes, you wrote freedom on the bottom of them on both shoes with a big black marker, and I wrote it real big, pretty big, so you could read it. So, you know, I always knew that I had freedom on the bottom of my shoes. I always knew that I had freedom within my heart. That I was in prison, but prison wasn't in me. I wasn't allowing the prison and and. And the, a lot of lifers were miserable, and, and, and they just kind of, a lot of them would give up and just thought they were never going to go home. And I wasn't um, going to give up, and I always believed that I was going to be free one day. And, and I knew God would send me an angel, and I really believe um, my attorney, Deirdre, is my angel from God. She's God sent, and she's just amazing. And I prayed for that. Every night I cried and you know, and I said, God, please send me somebody to help me get the justice that I deserve. So, um, and I just think, sometimes I think, God, why did it take so long? Because 17 years is, is huge. But um, I, don't, I don't understand why it took so long for the truth to come out. And I don't think that should ever happen. And um, it's yeah. just an injustice that was unfair. Well, the the idea of writing freedom on the bottom of your shoes is so symbolic. I I love that because you literally walked freedom every day. Yes, the women in prison today now are, I've gotten some letters, a, a huge amount of letters from the prisoners, and they're actually writing freedom on the bottom of their shoes. And actually, mm-hmm. somebody came from the outside of the prison, a ministry, and went into the prison, and the girls were showing them how they had freedom on the bottom of their shoes. So. I'm mm. kind of excited about that. So that's I kind great. of left a legend in the prison. 
so um, that they can also believe that, you know, that they can have freedom also one day. Well, Susan, can you, can you even possibly explain to us what prison's like? Um, prison is, um, it's, it's nothing nice. It's, it's, there's mean spirit women. It's, you know, you're, you're told to do something every day. You're, you're programmed and it's, um, gosh, I mean, you, but you can make the best out of a bad situation, which that's what I did. And, and, um, every day you're just, you're told to get up and you go to breakfast and then you go to work and, and then you come back to your cell, you're locked in your cell pretty much, or you can go out in the day room and, you know, certain hours of the day, and then you have to lock back in the cell, and then you actually, um, you know, where they count you, and you're locked in at night, but a lot of times you're locked in, or there's um, times when, you know, we have lockdown, and we can't come out of our room but to eat, so um, it's a lot of, it's just a lot of times you're just locked in your room, and actually, and then you come out to program, but... um, yeah. T- what do you mean and by program? What do you mean by program? Program, like when like you have a little job. Like I had a job where I was actually a porter where I actually would go to the um, to captain or lieutenant's office and I would clean their offices during the day and, um, and then come back to the unit and then um, take a shower and get ready for dinner or take a shower after dinner, depending on, you know, when I, you know, you, ha- you can take a shower when you want. In the room, there's eight women per room and there's a shower in the room and there's a bathroom one toilet and then there's two sinks and a little table so that's like the room's so small that if somebody wants to walk in their area the other person has has to um, sit down on their bed in order for you to walk you know to get in your locker it's very small and cramped for eight women um, the rooms are made for four women but they actually have eight women four okay. bunk beds four yeah. okay four bunk beds mm-hmm. uh, so are two lined up, are two bunk beds each on, on each wall with an aisle down the middle? Yeah, that's a picture of it, yes. Uh-huh, okay. And how, do you know how big the room was, the, uh, the dimensions? No, I, I really don't, but it's pretty small. I, I used to know, but I forgot now, yeah. yeah. It's and very then, small. And then each one of you have a little tiny locker. Yeah, we, well, it's a tall locker. It's like you could probably, um, like a person, like maybe like five eight could, you know, the height maybe like five eight, the the height wise, and then it's thin. So they're not very big, but they're tall. They're not little short ones. They're tall ones. So you oh, actually have that, and then the drawer under your bed. There's two drawers under the bottom bunk. Okay, uh, so the lockers like like we see pictures of school lockers, those kind uh, of lockers. Yes, yeah, like that. Okay. Okay. And so the space between the walking space, you said somebody would have to sit on the bed for the, somebody to pass through on the, where you can walk. Right. How wide through the was lock, that to about? To get through your lockers. And then through, to go to the bathroom, you actually have to you know, um, stand sideways in order for the other person to walk to go to the bathroom or to the shower. Okay. So that must have been, what, about two feet wide? Yeah, two feet, I would say. Yeah. It's very okay. small. There's supposed and, to be four people in a room, not eight. But um, right. I think they pay a fine every month. Because they're overcrowded. Yeah, they're overcrowded. Is this uh, Chowchilla? Um, this is, um, yeah, CCWF, Chowchilla, and yeah. Okay. And um, that's amazing. So the, now the, the bathroom, that's not a separate bathroom. It's just a toilet. It's like, um, it has a door, but it has a big window. So you can actually, the cops can actually look in. If you're on the toilet, they would see you from the waist up, you know, or like, from okay. your, um, they'd see your head. Okay, all right. 
And then the shower has a window, too, where they can actually see your head if you're in the shower and they say they want to count you and then they would see that you're in the shower and they could see the head. But they would actually have a door and then they could see your feet if they wanted to look below. And, and Susan, how are you treated by the guards? Um, some of them are, are very nice, and I respected them because that's just the kind of person I was. That I respect authority. So I really never got treated um, I, badly. But, I mean, there are some that just um, just are very mean. But then there's pretty much most of them, I would say, were pretty decent. Okay. So, so the real challenges were rather women that were aggressive. Yeah, the ones that were control freaks are mean spirits. And then you had some with split personalities were like sibyls. So with eight women to a room, it was a lot of um, different personalities. So you have them bumping off, and um, it can get a little crazy. And I would see, you know, fights and, you know, crazy stuff or people telling people off and where they wanted to fight. And then some did fight, and I've actually seen a lot of fights. Mm-hmm. And how often did your children get to visit you? Um 2005 was the first time I saw all three of my children. Um, I was trying to get down to CIW so I could be closer, and then I would would have saw them more, but they would never let me go down to CIW. Um, so, CIW is And then what the last time um, Jessica came up on the bus, there was a bus that paid um, for the um, your families to come up, mm-hmm. and they would. Um, she she came up like three different times in 2010 and 11, I think. I saw Jessica, my younger one, about three times. Over but, the 17 um, I years. I never really saw much of my children. That's really, you know, hard for me to talk about. Yeah. But, yeah. It was very painful. Yeah. And CIW, that's the California Institution for Women, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And is that it? Is that in Atascadero? Um, Chino? Is it? Um, I, oh, think it Chino? I think Chino? it's... I think it's... Oh, yeah. Chino. Okay. Okay. So that would have been much closer. Yeah. It's like an hour away. Yeah. Yeah, Chow Chill is hard to get to, no matter where you're where you come coming from. Right. <laughs> okay, uh, Deirdre, how did this come about? How did? Why was Susan targeted as uh, for the murder of Rick Daly? Oh yeah, this this case is just insane in how bad it was managed by just about everyone that touched it. Um, there was uh, Rick Daly was brutally attacked by three gang members in a uh, vacant house that you, uh, that was still currently owned by Susan's mother. But there was two houses on a lot, and the the uh, these meth users that everybody refers to as tweakers lived in the front house, and their gang members started to hang out with them because they were using as well, and they would bust into the back house to to uh, get high. And Rick Daly um, uh, either stopped in on his own or was lured into the vacant er, the house with the gang members there. And then he was uh, viciously attacked with a hammer. His head was busted open, and it was brutal. Um, so the police, uh, the body was dumped in another city. It was dumped in San Pedro, and the police were a little baffled for a week or, t- or maybe a week and a half until... Uh, Informants started to come forward and and identify uh, the body and the perpetrators. And then the police had all the information they needed to go after the people that were in the room and and participated in this. Um, and instead of doing just that, 
um, they got some information from a very um, disreputable woman who was known to come to the police with lies uh, just out of vindictiveness and a need for attention. And for some reason, the story that she pitched to the detective, the lead detective, uh, Marcella Wynn, appealed to Wynn, and she went with it. Uh, and uh, just as an aside, Detective Wynn um, has also been on uh, been in this place before. She's uh, her investigation led to the wrongful conviction of Obi Anthony and uh, oh, Reggie really? Cole. Um, oh, anyway, so yeah. Wynn gets this information from June Patty uh, that implicates Susan, and essentially June Patty, um, who is this disreputable person and a, and a tweaker herself, um, says that Susan um, had uh, confided in June, uh, wanting some legal advice, and said, "Hey, you know, I was involved, and I was here, and I did this, and I did that. Do you think I can get in trouble?" And that was the story that June created from the bits and pieces of information she was getting on the street. And Detective Wynn, with nothing more than that, Detective Wynn um, set her sights on, on Susan. And that uh, led to the McDonald's confrontation. And shortly after that, she brought her to the police station and did an interrogation that was really amounted to nothing more than Wynn um, demeaning uh, Susan, treating her like a child, and telling her that she knew she was guilty. And, and, and unless Susan was going to say she was guilty, uh, Wynn really didn't want to hear anything else from her. Mm-hmm. And um, to watch that tape, um, it's, just, it's just, oh, it's so uh, infuriating. Um, and, and what would Detective Wynn's objective be in identifying Susan instead of these three gang members? Well, she did go after... Um, she went after one of the gang members in earnest. Another one, I'm suspicious about what she was really trying to accomplish there because the investigation was so bad, it ultimately led to his acquittal. And then she let another one escape entirely. Um, the, one, the one she went after was Chad Landrum, right? right? And, and then, the one that... Um, the one that also benefited from June Patty's statement was um, Lester Monlor, and he was the one that did get arrested and did face trial, but he was able to benefit from June Patty's statement because June Patty's uh, the confession she made up from Susan also had some convenient uh, um, information in there that exculp- uh, exculpated um, Lester. So she basically said that Susan's confession included statements that Lester was innocent. And did Patty have, uh, June Patty, have a relationship with him? Yeah, she had a relationship with uh, people in the front house, which included Lester and his mother were living there. Lester's mother was close uh, to um, the people that lived in the house. And so uh, June Patty was uh, was visiting from out of town, and she had uh, been at that house a few days uh, after the murder, but before she implicated Susan, and she went with Lester's mother to the court appear to his arraignment. Uh, the, that was um, the day before, or two days before she implicated Susan. So okay. she's not only visiting with them; she's actively involved in in following Lester's, uh, you know, uh, dilemma of being arrested for this, and then two days after, or the day after, she's in the courtroom watching Lester get arraigned. June Patty calls up Detective Wynn and says, "Oh yeah, by the way, Susan um, confessed to me." And what the really funny part is, is that June Patty actually called Detective Wynn 
before the supposed confession. So it's it's kind of a mystery as to what what she was calling for. Yeah. uh, Like she says the confession happened on the 13th of August in the evening, but she calls Detective Wynn in the morning of the 13th. Okay. Now, Lester was also known as Wicked. Right. Was that his moniker? Okay. And then then Chad, what did Chad go by? Was that uh, Ghost? Ghost. Ghost? Right. Okay. And then the third guy was Santo Alvarez. Right, and he goes by Payaso. Now, the really interesting part of this is that Payaso, three weeks before this murder, had falsely implicated two other people in a different murder. And Mm. so when Detective Wynn learned of his name, she also learned that he was a star witness for the prosecutor on another case. And she called the um, detective on the other case. And they had a couple of conferences, um, the substance of which are not documented anywhere. But the, uh, I think we could guess at what was happening there because s- soon after those conversations, Payaso was off the list of consideration on the daily murder. Mm-hmm. So he, he basically was never investigated or prosecuted for the daily murder, and that allowed him to be free to testify in this other case without being burdened by the stigma of being labeled a murderer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the prosecu- sounds like the prosecutor needed him on the other case. Looks that way. Yeah, that, does way- <laughs> that is the way it looks. Okay, so, um, wow. So June Patty was also the sister of a Los Angeles police person. A uh, Torrance woman. police officer. Torrance- Torrance police officer, a sister of Torrance police officer. Yes. And that woman, the Torrance police officer, didn't have any, um, didn't have anything good to say about her sister, did she? Right, and she never did. You know, that was uh, June's sister was unequivocal in her feelings about June and was open in expressing them to anyone and everyone. She would tell her colleagues at the police department. And, and people out on the street, anyone who ever asked her her feelings about her sister would know exactly what they were. And those feelings were that her sister should not be trusted uh, under any circumstance. She was a, a liar and a manipulator and, and really a mean-spirited person. She went out of her way to hurt other people, and, um, and her sister knew that to be the truth about June. Did the prosecutor know her relationship with, uh, with June Patty? The detective's relationship? Well, the sister was brought up into the case early on um, from a, for a variety of reasons. It, it, there's no document that suggests that the, pros- the trial prosecutor spoke to the sister, but the trial prosecutor was aware that, um, June, uh, that June had a sister because in, in June's statement uh, to Detective Wynn, she mentions her sister. Um, and that her sister was a police officer. It certainly would have made sense for them to reach out and talk to the sister. We do know from speaking to the, uh, the sister that Detective Wynn spoke to her, and we do know that she told Detective Wynn, um, you know, exactly what she thought of her sister. So Detective Wynn knew at the time that she was seeking to have Susan prosecuted that June Patty's sister um, w- didn't think June was, should be trusted at all. In fact, um, that was Laura Patty, uh, was a police officer, and she said uh, that June was a pathological liar and a master manipulator, as a quote. That's a quote. Right. Hmm. 
Okay, so um, Susan had a loose connection to this property. Well, Susan's mother owned the, both houses. Um, okay. Susan's mother was sick, and she had to move in with her sister um, in Orange County, and the house was uh, vacant because the police were uh, were putting pressure on on them to because of the drug uh, activity happening at both houses. So um, prior to Susan um, living with her boyfriend at the time, uh, Tom, she had lived in that house with her mother. So and, she did have a, a former connection to the house, it, and the house the house had been vacated for many months before the murder happened. And Rick Daly actually was a former boyfriend of Susan's. Yeah, the, the two of them had a relationship for somewhere in you know the six six months to a year range. Um, broke. Uh, it ended when Rick uh, was incarcerated for um, an offense. Um, Susan moved on with her life, met someone else. And then uh, when he was released um, uh, jail, he ended up coming back into that neighborhood because that's the, where, what he knew. He was a homeless man, but those were the, where he knew people. Yeah. And, and what was the motive of the three gang members beating him up? Well, the story that uh, we're getting is that uh, Chad Landrum, Ghost, um, just went off, that during the time that they were all getting high, that he just got angry and decided that Rick had stolen some tools from, from Chad's father and he wanted to punish him. And um, the uh, the use of the hammer was supposed to be symbolic for that, that transgression. But um, because of... All we know for sure is that those three were in the room when it happened and that Rick was killed with a hammer. We're relying on um, statements from, you know, from, from Piasso tell us, you know, what, the motive for it. And, he, you know, so he has a reason uh, himself to, um, you know, he has a reason to tell the story a certain way. I don't know what the actual truth is. So... Uh, what was the prosecutor's motive for Susan to have done it? They say that we, June is the one that gave the motive. She, she said in the uh, confession that Susan said she was angry because Rick was stealing things from the house and that her and Tom, it's, it's a terrible uh, confession because it changes dramatically at trial. But the original statement is, um, Susan and Tom went into the house and discovered Rick Daly sleeping became upset because he had been stealing things in the past and decided to kill him or beat him up and then the killing went too far and they and that they brought in a gang member to assist. At trial, she changed it entirely. And now it was Susan and Rick were in the house and Tom came in and caught them in a compromising position or believed that they were. And then he uh, started the, uh, the attack um, and then got the assistance of the gang members to help. And then, um, according to that version, Susan is said to join in to prove her loyalty to Tom. Well, what's weird about that version is, wasn't Tom Susan's boyfriend at the time? Yes. And, and Tom wasn't charged. Right, yeah, no, that's, they never um, uh, documented any conversations with him either. You know, it it really is, it's mind-boggling. So, Susan had, actually had three witnesses that 
testified to her alibi for the time period of, the, of this murder? She had, um, well, one witness and herself for the alibi. It was uh, Tom's father was helping um, her uh, and Jessica uh, move some boxes and some smaller items from, uh, from the apartment that Tom and Susan were in uh, in Redondo Beach to a home that they were uh, renting in Gardena. And so Tom was uh, working, and so his father... Uh, came over after work and and helped Susan load up the boxes. And Susan and Jessica uh, went with Tom two separate cars from um, Redondo to Gardena, a couple trips, um, and then stayed at the new house unpacking and kind of getting settled in for the rest of the night. Susan never left the, ho- uh, the house that night. Um, so both Tom and Susan testified to that. Okay. I mean, I'm saying not Tom, uh, Jim, Tom's father. Okay. Okay, and then somebody else testified that Susan was not at the the house where the, the murder happened. Right, Rick uh, Daly's girlfriend at the time, Corey, uh, had been looking for Rick because she knew that she had last seen him at 7 o'clock and she knew that he was supposed to return to her. She knew that the last place he was going to be at was that vacant house. So she went there looking for um uh, for her, or for Rick, and saw other people there, and Susan was not one of the people there. Okay, and then a third person um, testified that Susan couldn't have met with Patty, with June Patty, when June Patty said she did. Is that right? There was another person uh, that was there, was present during um, June Patty said she made a phone call to Susan to try, um, that she called Susan at a certain time from a certain location, and there was a woman who said that she was there during that time, and there was no meetup after that. Okay. Now, let's talk about the attorney a little bit. Um, The attorney um, was faced with with June Patty's testimony that was contradictory to the autopsy. Right. Um, June Patty had said that, that there was a bandana stuffed down his throat and his lips were sealed with super glue and so on and so forth, which, of course, wasn't supported by the autopsy. Right. And, and again, those are things that, um, that happened... The the um, the statements of June um, evolved over time. Her original statement was that um, Susan claimed that uh, Rick Daly was kicked to death. There was no mention of a hammer, no mention of a mm-hmm. of a um, of crazy glue, no mention of um, other things that she added later on the sex stuff. Uh, at trial, she added crazy glue and um, the hammer to be, obviously she's getting more information as she gets closer to trial and she's trying to to add that um, to the mix. But the crazy glue was something that absolutely could have been uh, determined by asking questions of the coroner because they can test for that and they can determine whether there's any residual, um, the chemicals that would would remain there. Um, And the lawyer didn't do the test. Part of that is he's getting hit with it at trial, but he didn't ask for the time to, mm. to do those to disprove her, and he's not asking the appropriate questions of the coroner. The other big 
lie that uh, June Patty made up at trial was um, to, to say that Rick Daly was burned in the house while he was alive. And that okay. was a statement she gave in advance of trial. And so the lawyer should have known that that was something to, uh, to deal with. And the coroner was asked uh, by the prosecutor if there was any evidence of um, um, a burning while he was alive. And the coroner was, was clear that there was absolutely no evidence of that, that all of the injuries sustained from all of the burn marks happened after his death. Um, and the lawyer didn't do anything to bring that information to, uh, to the jurors. So as soon as June Patty says he was burned alive, that's what the jurors heard, and that's what they believed. And did you talk to uh, Susan's attorney when you were doing this case? He's not in good health. He's, he's, he's an older man. He was, he was 70 years old. Um, At the time? Time, and he was not in good health at the time. He had actually suffered a stroke before the trial and was mm. on medication and had some trouble staying awake during the trial. Uh, but now his health has deteriorated uh, much more, and he's not, he really doesn't have any ability to, um, to address it at all. To yeah. think back to the back then anyway. Well, and from your perspective now, Deirdre, I, it's hard to imagine that the jury convicted Susan What's your? T- I mean, it's hard just reading the trial transcript to figure that out. But what do you think? I think the trial prosecutor was a far better um, trial advocate. If we're going to judge it by performance, you know, uh, getting the emotion of the jurors and 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 in engaging them in earning their trust, that she did that. She stood up in front of them and she conveyed to them that you can count on me, you can trust me. And so when I come to you with all this passion and, 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 and uh, I, I point to this woman and tell you she's guilty, believe me. And she was be- much better at that part of trial advocacy than the uh, defense lawyer was. Mm. And she was able to get the jurors to overcome the problems in the case because the defense lawyer wasn't there pointing them out, and uh, this was a horrific crime. And she made it more horrific because she said the man was burned alive, and she said there was crazy glue, and she said that this this was a sadistic woman who took Mm. pleasure in watching this happening. And she just stirred everyone up. Mm -hmm. Mm. I I really believe that the jurors um, trusted her. Completely. And Susan, how did you connect with Deirdre and Innocence Matters? How did that come about? Well, the first time she came to see me, um, it was to ask me questions about one of the gang members that I never knew. And then um, I told, and then she asked me if somebody was helping me. And I said, yeah, somebody was helping me with my case. So we weren't able to really talk. And I remember before she left, um, I was telling her how I never knew the gang member. And and how I'd been sitting here in prison for, it was about 15 years at that time, but and she had tears in her eyes, and I guess I, I always can make her cry, but it was <laughs> like, I'm, I mean, I felt like a connection in, but even though she left, about two weeks later I was watching the news, and I saw this guy that was on, in prison for 17 years, and an attorney got him out, and it was her, and she, they flashed her on the TV, and I was telling my roommates, I go, oh, my God, that's the attorney that just came and visited me two weeks ago. So I was like, why did I let her go? Because I felt like I did let her go. So then I think I, a few months later, I got her address and I wrote her and I just kept 
thinking, wow, this woman, you know, she's from Torrance. She could help me. And this, you know, she got somebody else out. And so I was kind of getting excited, but I still didn't know she was going to help me. But I think it was about six months later, she um, actually came and saw me again. And then her um, investigator, David Winkler, he ended up telling her, talking her into taking my case. So I felt like he was my the key to my freedom because... She wasn't sure because she didn't really want to get involved because of the other people helping me. So I was just so uh, excited and happy that she finally took my case and, you know, and it all worked out. And it was like, it was so orchestrated. Like it was, everything happened so quick and it was like dominoes effect. When she started working on my case in 2013 at the end, I think 2013, just everything just came together in 2014. It was just it was just amazing. I'm still amazed at how it all came together so perfectly and so um, just, it was like it was orchestrated by, I believe she was God sent and um, it was just amazing. She's an amazing um, um, attorney and I just love her to death and I, I just, I think her every day, it's just, um, I just want to be able to help her and, and be a part of her life. I feel like we're family now. now She's a part of my great. life. That's great. And the, and the case you're talking about that she saw on TV was John Smith's case, wasn't it, Deirdre? Yes, it was. And, yeah. um, and the case I was going to see Susan about was the other murder that I was talking about where, where Piasso had falsely snitched on, um, lied about two other people, and I was working on that case. And, and that was, um, Ghost and that was, had confessed uh, to committing that. That was a drive-by shooting. Ghost had confessed to that, and I wanted to learn more about him, so I was reaching out to his co-defendant to find out more about him and the, the details of that crime, and in researching that, I did know that Susan was online. There were friends that had posted some stuff saying she was innocent, so before I went there, I knew she had uh, was claiming innocent. I just didn't know she was represented, and so when, um, for, unfortunately, we had like a five-minute visit, because as soon as I found out she was represented, I had to leave, um, but yeah, no, it was um, really interesting um, way that we connected. Yeah. And that other case uh, was O.B. Anthony, correct? No, no, no. The other case is John Clenny. He's still oh. in custody. Oh, okay. Um, and we're, uh, we're optimistic uh, that the DA is going to turn their attention to that case very soon. Um, and we're anticipating um, his exoneration um, as soon as they get around to it. And John Clenny is going to be on the show next week instead of John Smith, the way we announced it. Yeah, I think I yeah. think actually. So John is in uh, custody still, but his mom will will be available okay. to talk about that case. Okay, great. Well, I, I mentioned Obi Obi Anthony because Obi was on the show uh, in 2012, and I uh, am friends with his investigator, which you, who you also probably know, George Michael Newman. Oh yeah. Yeah, I know. Uh, now, did you work with uh, um, Lori Levinson? I believe um, was one of the attorneys on that case out of Loyola. That I don't know. I just know that uh, George Michael Newman worked on the case. So, um, and and Ob was great. He was on with the Northern California Innocence Project, actually. Yeah, I think I think Lori collaborated with the Northern uh, California Innocence Project on that case, if I'm remembering it correctly. Okay. All right. So, um, my goodness, Susan, what a great life you have ahead of you. Um, 
You've only been out of, I just can't even imagine, you've only been out of prison two months. I know. <laughs> just, I it was three um, months yesterday, and somebody said, no, it's two months, Mel, and I went, oh my gosh, it's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I'm so excited and just so um, grateful. I'm so grateful every day just to um, wake up and know that I'm free. I'm a free woman now, so I have a lot to be thankful for, my attorney, and just how it all turned out. Um, and I really want to share my story and um, make a difference in others, you know, and not to give up and have faith and have hope. And, and you know, and life's not really worth living unless you're helping somebody, and that's what I love about um, my attorney, um, Deirdre, because she um, she has such passion. It's She has a passion to do what she does, and, and um, that's what um, the tears, I think, when she gets tears in her eyes and that, it's so real, and her passion is um, it's just amazing, and... And she really does deserve to um, um, just to be recognized in what she does do and the passion and her love that she really loves what she does. And she works hard at it, and she works hard on my case. She'd come to see me in the county jail. She was so tired and up, you know, like half the night, she said, working on my case. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you need some sleep. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, so, um, yeah. So, I'm Susan, just, what is, um, what is your next step? What is your next step, Susan? Um, well, um, I think I, I want to share my testimony, and I also want to be able to share it in churches, you know, and, and what God did while I was in prison, because I have a, a testimony and a story to share in my experience, because um, I really believe um, it's very um, life-changing, and because it really changed my life, but um, it also, it was like God's love um, energized me and empowered me every day to make it to survive the um, the injustice and the um, you know terrifying um, situation that I was living in every day and you know and it's scary being in prison and you never know what could happen each day you know you can you be fearful even for your life so um, it was a challenge but I made it and so I'm just I'm so grateful and thankful. And I have a and big world now. Everything's so changed <laughs> and so huge now on the phone. Just I um, actually talked to my son today from overseas and actually got to see him. And I thought, I saw him moving, but I thought it was just a picture of him. But it's so amazing <laughs> what you can do on a phone now. So I'm still learning how to work a phone. So you, and, you, um, you, saw, you saw him on Skype or on FaceTime or what? On Skype. And, on um, Skype. Okay. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Skype. Yeah, Skype. Okay, a P on it. But yeah, and I was so amazed because I hadn't talked to him in almost over a month because he's overseas in the Navy. And and Susan, what advice do you have for families uh, who believe their their loved ones are wrongfully convicted and are still in prison? What advice do you have? Um, to never give up and um, to keep your faith and hope alive with love, with God's love, and just. Um, Never stop, you know, writing people or, you know, calling people and just until you get the right person, you know, and just, um, I believe in the power of prayer. Just keep praying that God will put that one, that right person in your, in their life to um, help them get the justice that they deserve. And Deirdre, what advice do you have? Well, I would echo that. And I would also say for anyone that is moved by these stories, any of these stories, that uh, you reach out to, to whatever innocence organization uh, 
you're impressed with and, and donate uh, because these cases take a tremendous amount of resources. Uh, there's a lot of out-of-pocket expenses. We spent a lot of time on the road going from this prison to that prison. Uh, it, 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 there's mounds of paperwork, and you have to go find it and get it copied. It, it's just an incredible um, resource. Right? And because we rely on polygraphs, that's a huge part of our expense. Um, additionally, it, it isn't... Um, sustainable in the long term for us to continue to do it on a volunteer basis. We need to move to a, a place where we can have um, paid staff and, and so we can reach more people. We have over, um, oh gosh, I don't even know, couldn't even count how many of those letters, but stacks, mounds and mounds of letters we received since Susan's been out. And we want to get to them, and we want to get to them as quickly as possible. So um, I would echo what Susan said, and then for everybody else who's enjoying their freedom, um, do what you can to help the next person get out. Yeah, absolutely. And what I think what many people don't know is all these innocence projects are funded by by people. They're not they're not paid jobs typically. Typically, I know the investigators that work on innocence project cases do it pro bono. They do it for free. So, right. uh, and, and we do, one of the other things that we do that is important to us is that we bring in law students because we want the, them to have the exposure to this issue so that it informs their practice for the rest of their lives, that, they, that they're never on the wrong side of, of this issue. Um, and that takes resources to train them and to develop a program that can allow them to take a, a, a part in the case and, and still provide a teaching component to it. So um, it is, um, there are... There is a real need for uh, funding to allow the work to go on. Now, uh, Deirdre, let me ask you, uh, it sounded like from what I read about Susan's case is that uh, you took this information to the prosecutor's office uh, and therefore convinced them before you ever took it to the court. Well, yes, and I'll just say I do want to thank you for bringing that up. I do want to uh, make special note of the prosecutors that worked on this case because their work was really uh, just the. It made me proud uh, to uh, to be associated with them. And first, it starts with uh, Steve Katz. He was the head deputy who I met with. Uh, Piazzo was getting ready to make a statement to um, the daughter, and I wanted uh, I wanted the. DA's office and the and the police to be involved early on, and uh, Steve. I went in and met with Steve Katz, and and he uh, took um, steps to make sure that uh, the case was pulled up and assigned to someone, and the case was given to Lauren Naiman, uh, who's an experienced district attorney, a senior lawyer there, um, and he dug in, and he was he was not an easy sell. I mean, we mm-hmm. have many I'm phone sure. calls back and forth, uh, yeah. but ultimately he came to see what was going on and. Um, then there were two investigators, uh, Joe Vita and Dave Jones, and those three men worked um, as hard on the case as, well, not as hard, but close, close as they could get to what we did. But they put a lot, a lot of hours in the case, and um, their investigation was impeccable. Okay. All right. Well, I, I might mention that because of the great work of the Innocence Projects across the country, some of the d- local district attorney's offices have been establishing integrity units. I know we have one in San Jose. We have one in Alameda County, California, and uh, um, they're looking into possible innocence as well, which is very exciting. Very exciting. So, um we're at the end of our hour, Deidre and Susan. You guys have been so great. Uh, I 
so appreciate the opportunity to share your story, Susan. And I wish the best for you and your future. Thank you. Thank you so much. God bless you. And Deirdre, thank you for the important work you do. Innocence does matter. And Troy Davis didn't die in vain. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah. So uh, for the rest of you, join me again next week as we declassify more, more real stories of exonerations. Every Thursday morning, 12 noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, it's P.I.'s Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 